Welcome, our lovely ghosts and goblins. This is You Totally Made That Up, the bi-weekly podcast where we tell you stories from around the world with supernatural and paranormal and generally spooky elements that are true. Yes, you heard that right. True stories, or at least they're true to the people who live them. And all of them fall under the banner of things that sound like somebody totally made them up. And I'm Nash. I'm Tiff. Hello. Welcome. And Tiff's cat is also our other co-host. So if you hear any chiming in, any meows chiming in, then that's what it is. My dogs are also around somewhere. So we might get a wolf commentary at some point, which if not, I've either edited them out or miraculously they've all stayed quiet. So look, we're not professionals. (laughs) We try. Well, we're we're moderately, there's a mediocre amount of trying sort of. I was telling Tiff I have got a thing now on my mic to hopefully prevent the popping of peas, which has driven me nuts during editing. I hope it hasn't driven our listeners too terribly nuts. But there's lots of you now, and that's awesome. Yeah, it's exciting. Welcome. Hello. We're not historians. We're not folklorists. We're not, what else can we tell them that we're not? Um, let's see. Because we are, are awesome. Yeah, we're not ghost hunters. <laughs> we're not paranormal experts where we hopefully keep you company i got some feedback recently they said you don't know you just don't know you got me through loads of laundry and ironing and <laughs> housework and you made it fly by and i'm like that's it if we if, if we only become known for that then i think yes and road trips a couple people yeah. have written me to say we've saved them drives to work and things like that <laughs> we will keep you company. We'll help keep you from being too bored. Gosh, I'd love to have somebody, you know, just kind of chat with me while I'm folding laundry. Heck yeah. Oh, a couple things. And then we're going to get to the story. I was going to say, I have a post I wanted to do that says, you know, what makes us different, you know, things you might like as compared to other podcasts, because we did our research. It's impossible to listen to all of them, of course, but we did hefty amount of due diligence, I think, on podcasts with similar topics. And, you know, of course, podcasts hosted by two women and things like that. And you learn so much from reviews. And one thing that I saw that was one of the things that came up frequently was, you know, stop talking so much at first about like personal lives and personal stories and get to the story that you're you know, get to the podcast story. Don't we don't want to hear about your stories. So I promise. I promise. I'm not going to do that to you. We will just do just quickly, though, a couple things housekeeping wise. But of course, we love it when you like and comment and rate and review and subscribe and do all that stuff on the listening platform of your choice. And anywhere that you can find us is always provided for you, wherever our online presence may be. Um, When we get rolling, we'll likely add to those. But for now, I can assure you that wherever you are, whatever time you're listening to this particular episode you'll find things linked to take you to where we are. Oh, I did want to tell you guys, if you've left reviews on iTunes, we can't see them yet. I can see that there's three ratings, if memory serves. I think there's three or four. But anyway, supposedly, I think it's after five, I think they start to show, which is odd to me, I guess. And apparently reviews there get screened by some magic person behind a monitor at Apple, bless their hearts. They have a lot to do, but um, that'll show up eventually. So if you've left them preemptive, thank you. We're not ignoring you. One more thing I did want to ask of our wonderful audience. If you guys get a second, swing by the YouTube page. It's linked back at the blog. And if you would just hit subscribe, even if you don't listen there, that would rock. Apparently, so our URL presently is this weird amalgam of letters and numbers. And it won't just go to YouTube slash user slash our name until we hit 100 subscribers. And that URL, this is just a personal thing because who cares what it is, right? I care. It's driving me bananas. (laughs) It's absolutely driving me bananas that I can't just, you know, stick in dot com slash user slash. You totally made that up. Anyway, so if we can get to 100 subscribers, you never have to listen to it there. You can listen to it wherever you want to, of course. Anyway, if you get a wild hair and you're feeling generous, do it for Nash. Yeah, it would be awesome. What have we got for him today? We've got mysteries for you guys today. They're ghosty, but they're mysteries. Mm -hmm. True crimey, but mysteries. (laughs) 
true crimey, ghosty, what the kind of situations. Bizarre. They're all bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a little there's a little bit of conspiracy in mine. Oh yeah, you go first. Oh, I get to go first this time? Uh-huh. Oh, and we're gonna this one's a, gonna be a shorter one, guys. Well, we're gonna it's gonna be the length that they should be. Last week though. We just had to. If if you haven't listened to last week's about fairies, my stars, that one went off the rails in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's only so much that you can cut out of that. You guys needed to know. You needed to needed know. To know. But yeah, no, this one, it's not going to be as time consuming, I guess. Gross. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To put it in one word, gross. Yeah. There's no rotisserie, you know, wife. No one gets barbecued. Yeah. But uh, there is some possibly murder. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I will go ahead and get us started. We are traveling back to old Hollywood. Like, Hollywood didn't even exist yet. Hollywood. <laughs> oh well, it, but but these are the stories are we didn't tell them Hollywood ghosts. That is the topic yes. for today. Yes. All right. So I'm sorry. Once upon a time, back before Hollywood was really Hollywood. Once upon a time, blah 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 blah. So my story, I'm going to be telling you guys all about Thomas Harper Ince. He was born in 1880, November 16th to be exact, and he had quite the career for all 44 years that he was alive. He started when he was 15. He started on Broadway in New York. And then by 1910, he started directing. He was working with D.W. Griffith, who, you know, a lot of people know for early films and for, oh my god, I'm blanking. What's that fucking movie? (laughs) Why didn't I put this in my notes? Um, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's the terribly racist movie. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yes. Um, it's, so it's no sharks. There's no sharks. Um, <laughs> no sharks. There's no sharknados or oh, anything man, like that. Sharknado. Yeah, no, this is going to wake me up in the middle of the night and it's going to hit me. Crap. Okay. okay, carry on. It'll come to I'm me. I'm sorry. To I, me. I, I, I like wasn't even going to bring it up, but of course I was like, oh, you know, well, not everybody's He's known for, know. yeah. Yeah, not everybody's going to know who D.W. Griffith, Griffith is, so I should probably mention it and then blanked. Sorry, my bad. It'll come hey, to me. You know, that's just, it's going to be personal betterment. You're going to search for something on the internet that's not a crappy Pinterest recipe. Congratulations, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I had a long day. <laughs> Could be a Pinterest recipe about sharks, about genetically <laughs> modified sharks that fly in tornadoes. How did we get here? Oh my gosh. All right. Getting back on track. <laughs> so, uh, so Thomas H. Ince, he's working, he's directing. Now, this is when a lot of the movie studios were first starting. So we've got Thomas Edison. He's got a film studio. We've got Griffiths. Uh, we've got a, a couple other people that are starting all these kind of, I don't want to call them pop-up studios, but essentially that's what they were back then because it was all the beginning. There's a lot of competition. There's lots of silent film stars that are kind of hopping around and they're trying to have contracts and create this whole industry. Now, he moves to California because he didn't care for all of the competition in New York and it was too stressful for him. So he moved to the to take care of the newly formed and completely garbage Bison Studios <laughs> in California. Now this studio that he took over to run essentially was just a plot of land and it had a barn and a four-room bungalow. So it was a whole lot of nothing just in California in the desert. Well, desert-ish, whatever. But he just, he, he made something with it. He started growing it. He started renting larger locations nearby until finally he ended up 
building his own studio in the Palisades Highlands. And it was nicknamed Inceville, and it was really a whole state-of-the-art studio. It had stages, it had production offices, it had printing labs, dressing rooms, prop houses, it had separate sets, cafeteria for all of the employees and the actors. And he eventually worked it up so that he was putting out three, two real silent movies per week. Good night. Yeah. So he essentially kind of established what was known as the assembly line production, which is just that it's not all focused on one movie at a time, that they're, they've got multiple productions in the works and they've got all the different kind of stations working on them. So that there was constant production at the studio. Oh, my cats are fighting. So. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, yes, they maybe, are. Maybe they saw a ghost. You don't do that. In case I can't edit that smoothly, you just experienced a break because of a cat fight, a literal cat fight, not between <laughs> Tiff and I, but a literal cat fight. All right, carry on. So Enz okay. is cranking them out like nobody's business. Yes. And there's a cafeteria. And so he's essentially built Hollywood. Right. Well, I guess it's Culver yeah. City, but Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, by the time, by his death, he was responsible for over 800 films. And he was involved in them as a silent film actor, producer, director, and a screenwriter. And he's often referred to as the father of the Western, because that was what he ended up kind of specializing in while he's out in California. And he's got all these ranches and land. And it was pretty amazing. He had a, he had a lot going on. What I thought was kind of funny, they set this off as kind of a one-liner. He ended up joining up with a gentleman named Adolf Zukor and formed what would eventually become Paramount Pictures. But he really wanted to run his own studio, so he purchased a lot, which became Thomas H. Ince Studios and eventually became Culver Studios. And Culver Studios is a very important filming location. You know, like I said, he created essentially the first major Hollywood studio facility. He was the first to build his own film studio. In the meantime, with all of this, he also helped to form the Triangle Motion Picture Company, which eventually evolved into Sony Pictures. Culver Studios is a filming location for movies like Gone with the Wind, the original A Star is Born, The Andy Griffith Show, Scrubs, Arrested Development, Lassie. I mean, there hasn't been a time where there's been motion pictures that they haven't been affected by Culver Studio. And it was all because of Thomas Itz. And I mean, he, he basically lived and breathed motion pictures. So now we are moving ahead to 1924. William Randolph Hearst, who I feel like he's going to pop up in lots of things, or just the family. They just seem to be involved. Involved, <laughs> yeah. Fingers <laughs> in lots of pies. Yeah. So Hearst is trying to negotiate a deal to use one of Insa's studios. And it's November, it's really close to Insa's birthday. So he's like, hey, come on my yacht, the Oneida. We'll do a big birthday celebration. I'll sweet talk you to make this a pretty awesome studio deal. Everything will be great for everybody. And some of the guests that were going on this trip included Charlie Chaplin, Hearst's longtime well-known mistress, Marion Davies. And then a bunch of other film stars that I'm pretty sure nobody nowadays is going to know. So they partied up on this yacht. You know, they're, they're sailing from, they started around LA. They're heading down to San Diego and everything's great. Ince is totally having the time of his life until he eats a bunch of salted almonds and drinks a whole bunch of champagne. And they interact very, very badly with his peptic ulcers. And shortly after, he dies. And it's listed as a result of heart failure. He died November 19th, three days after his birthday. Womp, womp, shittiest birthday party ever. Oh. <laughs> but it may have been even shittier than that. So the day after he dies and he's brought ashore, there's a newspaper that published the headline, Movie Producer Shot on Hearst Yacht. And then that evening, the story changed that he suffered from heart failure. 
Now, the story is, behind that is that her mistress, Marion Davies, might have been fooling around with Charlie Chaplin on the yacht and that Hearst caught sight of her sneaking away and shot at the man that was with her, mistaking Ince for Chaplin. So <laughs> we've got we've got I have questions. Going. I have questions, but keep going. Okay. I will reserve my questions. All right. Now, the reason that we have this story is because Charlie Chaplin's personal valet saw them taking Ince's body off the yacht while he was still bleeding from the gunshot wound. And then he told somebody, and they told two friends, and they told two friends. And <laughs> so Ince was, they had a, a viewing for his body, and it lasted a whole entire hour. And then immediately afterwards, he was cremated. His wife eventually took off to Europe. She just, you know, was kind of like, peace out. I'm just going to go over there and live my life. There's questions about whether or not she had her own, you know, personal wealth that she lived off of. There's also lots of rumors that Hearst ended up uh, essentially paying for a trust fund for her. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hearst just kind of kept doing what he was doing. And then within the next decade or so, he lost a shit ton of money because of the Depression. But Ince never let go of his beloved studio. From the time of his death, he's been seeing... Kitty, how about you don't do that? Sorry, guys. The cat's messing with the Cheez-Its. Um, all right. I'm never doing this in this room again. All right. So Ince never let go of his beloved studio. Since the time of his death, he's been seen walking up and down stairways, um, especially one by where he had a private screening room. His office is still intact even through all of these years, and he's been known to show up there. The studio changed hands probably 10 times you know to from cecil to mill and i mean it changed names but eventually it's now known as culver studios and in the 80s they were doing some renovations and he appeared to some construction workers some of the men saw a man with a bowler hat and he was watching them from the catwalks and when they tried to talk to him he just kind of turned and walked away and ended up walking like through a wall and then not too long after that, there were some other construction workers that saw him and he ended up scolding them, telling them, I don't like what you're doing to my studio. <laughs> Before I love he, it. He turned around and walked into a wall again. <laughs> love it. Yep. So, yeah, he's still around. He's still haunting the studio. Apparently a few other people haunt the studio, too. I mean, God, there are just like ghosts all over Hollywood, apparently everywhere but yeah thomas ince who really helped to create hollywood as it eventually became to be you know known wow my words and he died on Hearst yacht possibly being shot by Hearst, and haunts his studio now so it's for sure that he died on the yacht that's not disputed right he that is Okay, so like not like after the party. Okay, but to me, how do you keep all those? If he was shot, well, Hurst, I guess, yeah, Hurst had the power to pay off everybody. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there were, and you know, going with the conspiracies around this, you know, some of the guests following this incident apparently had some nice kind of strokes of luck, I guess you could say. You know, one of them became a pretty well-known, like, gossip columnist, and there's some question about whether or not he had any doing in that. I mean, he, he owned a newspaper, or several newspapers, so, yeah. yeah, that tracks. I mean, that definitely tracks. Yeah. His mistress stuck around afterwards. She was his live-in mistress up until he died, so she must not been too upset if she <laughs> if he was trying to shoot her other lover. Mr. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story. And I think it's funny just to imagine this ghost walking around with a bowler hat. <laughs> just telling people I don't like what you're doing around here. The construction workers are like, okay, well, after I go change my pants, we'll come back to these blueprints and see what we can't do. Thanks. Right. Yeah. All right. You've got some notes. Good, good. <laughs> you've got some notes. <laughs> That was a good quickie. Did you want to do your other one too? It's up to you. 
Yeah, we got time because I I had a vague I had a vague knowledge of the Ent story, but I've I've zero idea about this one when you floated yeah. this guy's name at me. So yeah, I definitely want to hear it. Yeah. All right. You guys get a bonus story. Yay. And hopefully my cats won't interrupt this one. Okay. So it's another, it's another little quickie. There's lots of kind of offshoots. I mean, we could probably make a whole episode about all the things connected to this one, but for right now, we will stick with this little story about a gentleman named Paul Byrne. And we're sticking around the same kind of time frame. Paul was born in 1889 and he eventually became a director and a screenwriter and producer for MGM. He had started out by studying acting, but essentially realized that he was not good at it. <laughs> and so then he went to focus on work behind the camera. He started with editing and then moved his way up. So he was living in New York and he had what was indicated to me as a common law marriage with a woman named Dorothy Millette. But doesn't seem like they had much of a relationship because he dumped her in a Connecticut sanatorium for her mental and emotional problems. Oh. Yeah, and he kind of set up a trust fund so that he can keep paying for her living expenses, and then he took off to California. So here he is, you know, in the center of everything with all of the studios, all of the hubbub, and he's working his way through as a producer, and he's doing pretty well for himself. So now the year is 1930, and he meets Jean Harlow, you know, who is the blonde bombshell. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he meets her while she's filming Howard Hughes' film, Hell's Angels, and he's all like, you're a star, baby, and she's all like, you're the only one who takes me seriously. And he ends up helping her career take off because up until this point, she was just seen as the blonde. And she had been mocked a lot for her acting and passed off as a floozy, which didn't really help because she was getting all those roles that basically supported that. For the next two years, he starts helping her get better roles, start serving her naturally, and their relationship grows. And they ended up married on July 2nd, 1932. On September 5th, 1932, Paul was dead. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of questions as to what happened. But apparently he died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in their home in Beverly Hills. He was found naked and bathed in her perfume. And instead of calling the police, the house staff called MGM Studios. And apparently the studio executives, including Mayer, actually showed up to the home along with some fixers and uh, did work for two hours before the police arrived. Time out. (laughs) A couple things. Yeah. He's... He says to himself, I, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. And yeah. he, so he's made that call for whatever mm-hmm. reason, loads the gun, you know, does all the things that you do, uh, which one would suppose would be to like write a note perhaps or, but he opts to get naked and like douse himself in her perfume. Yeah. Okay. He did and write then, a note. Oh, he did write a note. Okay, well. Yeah, it doesn't say a whole lot, though. It just says, dearest dear, unfortunately, this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and to wipe out my abject humiliation. I love you, Paul. You understand that last night was only a comedy. I I feel humiliated, dear dear. Uh, Therefore, I'm going to humiliate myself more. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to shut up. I, I Again, questions abound, but. So they find him, they come in, they clean right. or crew him. Okay. Right. So, you know, the fixers show up, they take care of it. The suicide note, which was written by him, question. So, so yeah, so, you know, Jean is upset about it, but not as upset. All that perfume. As- <laughs> I'm sorry. Perfume. <laughs> Does he know how much that costs per ounce? Damn him. Not the Chanel. (laughs) And you know what? He did it in her bedroom, which was like, first of all, I I love, and I was, was, as I was reading, I was like, her bedroom. I'm like, oh yeah, back then they had separate rooms. I was like, 
All right. Oh, God, that had to be so peaceful and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but her bedroom was apparently, like, all white. Like, all white. Okay, this and is a dick move. Whoever, whether it's is. murder or whether it's suicide, this is a dick move. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, yeah, as upset as she may have been as his current wife, his common-law wife was even more upset. She was found two days later on September 7th floating in the Sacramento River. She had committed suicide by jumping from a riverboat. How did she get how did she get out of the out of the loop? How did she get out of her I keep I'm trying not to say loony bit. Sana, 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 sanatorium sanitarium. I always get yeah, I always get those messed up. The ones that were for TV and the ones that were for um <laughs> if you've had a mental breakdown. Anyway, how did she get out of the asylum or whatever it was? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a good question. All right. Oh, I'm shutting up. Okay. That's, that's good. That's going into again part of the conspiracy of the okay. murder. Okay. Because the night of his death, they discovered by the swimming pool two glasses of wine and a wet woman's swimsuit. But it was never really identified and never brought up as evidence. So Paul's dead. Dorothy's dead. Five years later, Harlow is dead from kidney failure. Well, I mean, that's not... Well, she was only know. like 26. So, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Now, this house passed ownership a couple times. A few of the other people that owned the house also passed away in the house. And so with all of these deaths, there are lots of talks of ghosts in the home, especially of Byrne and apparently Harlow. And so those stories drew the attention of a gentleman by the name of Jay Sebring. And he purchased it and lived there while dating his girlfriend, Sharon Tate. Oh. Mm-hmm. So in approximately 1966, Sharon was staying overnight in the house. She was alone. And she had always gotten kind of the creeps about this house. She was never really comfortable was always thinking something weird was going on. This night especially, she was really not feeling it. So she wanted to have all the lights on. And like I said, she was by herself. So she was like, "Mm mm-mm, just this isn't sitting right. So she's in the bedroom, which also was Jean Harlow's old room, when old Byrne appears and starts to pace around. So, you know, as one does, she got her ass up and out of there (laughs) and decided, I need a drink. So she starts to go downstairs, but at the bottom of the stairs, she sees another ghostly image of somebody tied up and with stab wounds and their neck slit. So she goes and she's like, okay, no, mm -mm." she goes back over by the stairs and there's burn still kind of pacing like he's looking for something. Perfume. (laughs) It's the perfume. Going to hell. I'm sorry. (laughs) So eventually she does. She thinks it's a weird, messed up dream. She's like, all right, I've had enough of this. It's, it's the 60s. Who knows what else was going on in that house? But three years later, 1969, the Manson family murdered Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate. Jay was tied up and stabbed, much like the ghost that she had seen. And pregnant Tate was stabbed to death. The home is now under private ownership, so there's a lot of limited information about what's going on now. The owners will let people kind of do some tours on the outside, but they don't let people go inside. But at least as of 1994, there's still reports of hauntings in what's known as the Harlow House. So there's a ghost that apparently tried to warn Sharon Tate that she was going to be murdered, and it was Paul Byrne who may have been murdered. Because back then, I'd have to look this up, but... Well, I guess since the studio people came in, they wrecked any evidence, to be sure. And I mean, granted, it's 1932, so you got to wonder, too, how much, you know, proper investigation is going to go on. And I always wonder stuff about, like, you know, okay, well, if he's right-handed, you know, was the gunshot wound on the left side or was the gun in his left hand? You know, stuff like that. I mean, I know that they don't have... DNA or whatever, but hmm. 
Yeah. And there's some contention over the suicide note that, you know, one person said that that's not his handwriting, that it was like the housekeeper's handwriting. Some people said that Harlow was in on it. She was married again, like less than within less than a year. I think it might have even been later on in the year or two. She was remarried. So she was not apparently too heartbroken about it. She moved on very quickly. But yeah, so I just thought that that was kind of interesting connection, that there was this ghost that had such significance with, you know, Jean Harlow and early Hollywood, and then they're sticking around and they're trying to warn another famous person of their possible, you know, impending death. And then, of course, we all we all know the Manson family and Sharon Tate and Jay mm-hmm. Sebring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are my Hollywood ghost tales, and I hope that you enjoyed them. That is short. No, but But, you know, there's a lot there to unpack. Like, and you're right, (laughs) conspiracy stuff, definite conspiracy stuff. Yeah, that note's very cryptic. Like, what the heck was he talking about? Yeah, that's bizarre. Okay, well, yeah, but you know, I mean, there's some stuff that, of course, you can't deny that. Yeah, they both definitely died, and people apparently still saw them around, whether or not they were angry deaths or whatever. If his common law wife was like, hey, I'm still here. (laughs) I'm pissed off. We don't know. I'm still that if anybody knows how she got out, like, did she have a day pass? And she, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) She's just like, yeah, I'm just going to run down and like get an ice cream and whoopsie. I just, that's, mm, that's weird. Yeah. There's, there's some stuff going on there course you know it's all dismissed because she was she had her mental and emotional lady issues a quote-unquote big quote-unquote we'll Mm -hmm. never know the true story behind that i'm sure yeah but that's a good segue that well two reasons mine happens not terribly far ahead in the future from yours because we're getting into the 1930s now and also some conspiracy type suggestion here Mm too okay and, and you don't know, because when I floated this name out to you, you didn't, it rang, did it ring any bells with you? No. No? Okay. So you're, I think you're going to dig this. It's pretty good. So if you're in California, if you find yourself walking by an old, unused garage on Positano Road, don't be surprised if you hear a car running inside and smell exhaust fumes. And if you happen to find yourself in the building located at 17575 Pacific Coast Highway, don't be surprised if you see a beautiful woman dressed in 1930s clothing, complete with a mink and sparkly jewels, sauntering down the steps, headed to the courtyard area. She won't speak to you or bother you at all. There's no need to be frightened. The story you are about to hear is about this spirit, that of the ghost of the ice cream blonde. And that concludes my creepy opening of things that I don't believe. Okay. So now to the true story. Actress Thelma Todd was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts on July 29th, 1906. She was the second child of an Irish father and Canadian mother, John and Alice. She planned on being a school teacher. And so after she graduated high school in 1923, she enrolled in the school that is now the University of Massachusetts. Here we go again. I haven't been drinking today, I swear. University of Massachusetts, Lowell. So her mom convinced her to do beauty pageants. And after winning Miss Lawrence in 1925, she ended up winning Miss Massachusetts. And so when she's in the Miss America pageant, this Hollywood scout recruited her for film work at Paramount. So first she has to go to the Paramount Players School in New York because the studio is doing this thing where they wanted to create stars. And so they taught them how to be one, basically. And they got lessons, not just in acting, but in diction, which I need, clearly, athletics, and I quote, manners. All I'm doing is picturing that scene in A League of Their Own, you know, where they send all the girls to... Um, gracefully and grandly. And, and gracefully and grandly. That's, it. That's all I'm picturing. So she ends up being in roughly, and check this out, she was as busy as Thomas since. She ended up being in roughly 120 movies between 1926 and 1935. So she's a busy bee. Wow. And she's most known for her work in slapstick comedies with Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers, and Buster Keaton. So big deal. Big, big deal. Yeah. She could have gotten pigeonholed into dumb blonde stuff. But what made her unique was that she could play women with just lots of sass and snark. And quoting from an article, remembering her on what would have been her 107th birthday, she was, quote, 
capable of matching wits with Groucho Marx and keeping up physically with Keaton, which, you know, if you're familiar with those guys work, that's really saying something. And she also got paired with actresses Zazie Pitts and Patsy Kelly in short comedy series. And those were pretty rare at the time because the stories revolved around the women versus them just kind of being side characters. And of course, I'm putting pictures of her in show notes, but there's tons out there of stills from films of hers where she's just pulling some fantastic faces. So, you know, look those up if you get a chance, because she just seems like she was a hoot. Okay, so here's what else is awesome about Thelma. She was an entrepreneur. She opened up her own restaurant, Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe, in August of 1934. And I can't find the original source for this, but it was featured in an article talking about how she was the original Hollywood restaurateur. And Thelma reportedly said about doing this, quote, I realized long ago that it is only a case of a few years for an actress before she gradually, sometimes almost imperceptibly, loses popularity and younger ones start to take her place. Look at some of the one-time famous stars of a few years ago. Whoever hears of them now, most of them are unhappy and rather bewildered. It's pretty hard to have your lifelong career at an end, so I decided long ago I wasn't going to be one of them. The years are not going to bother me as they do so many of my colleagues. Wrinkles don't worry me, neither will increasing weight, because as long as I can use my head, it won't matter how I look. Love. Yeah. And she also said when being interviewed for a newspaper profile in 1934, quote, I started my cafe because I never found any place along the beach where I could look at the ocean and dine at the same time, yet there was enough ocean and enough places for restaurants. So I said to myself, Miss Todd, the day may come when we hand moving pictures back to the laboratories. And how do you know what the studio bosses have in mind for you? With that question, I decided that although I might have to accept a pair of shoes for six meals, still, practically everybody would have to eat. If barter and exchange became the fashion, I wanted to be in on the ground floor. So she's a smart cookie. She's thinking job security. And something else cute I just wanted to include real quick. This article starts off with a reporter saying, quote, she was reading a book when I approached. I am right up to date in my reading, she said. For the first time in three years, I'm only five years behind the times. I love her. I love her. I would have absolutely been friends with her, you know, assuming she found me cool enough. So now her on again, off again lover of about four or five years, they had met at a Catalina Island yacht party in 1930. And later they worked together as well, was a dude named Roland West. And he was a director. And he had helped finance the cafe. And it was the bottom floor of this large building where she and Roland lived in separate areas above it. Then also above that, kind of up and behind the building, like 300 feet back and up, there was like this 271 step staircase built into the hill leading up to it. So it was kind of up and back. Lived his estranged wife, Jewel Carmen, which, you know, okay, y'all do your thing. But, you know, honestly, I bet you dollars to donuts this had to do with finances, you know, like them not being divorced. And who knows? I mean, they could have had an open marriage. Like I said, Thelma and Roland were on again, off again. So it could have been that he and Jewel had an understanding. I don't know. But having said that, him living there with her, really, it could have been an issue for him because she was super social. And, you know, living together, he was having to watch her come and go to parties and dates and whatever all the time. And one article that'll be in show notes is from an interview with an author who wrote a book on Thelma. And she got hold of this huge document that was the coroner's inquest so spoiler Thelma does not make it to the end of this story and there's a mystery there in it there was a story about how Roland used to lock her out of the house when he thought that she was staying out too late because you know he's not controlling at all not at all and yeah one time she had to break the glass to get inside But in any event, I don't know that Thelma was particularly interested in a committed relationship at the time with Roland or anybody and here's why now, you took Italian, so you tell me how to pronounce this name. I think it's, you just tell me, it's D-I-C-I-C-C-I-O. Dicchio? Dicchio? We'll go with that. That's good. That's good stuff. So back in 1932, she had married Pasquale, a.k.a. Pat Dicchio, who apparently, according to Wikipedia, also had the nickname The Glamour Boy of Hollywood. And I looked up pictures of him, and I mean, okay, different times. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't unattractive, but I wouldn't use the word glamorous or striking or anything. But anyhow, he was an agent and a movie producer. And it was also rumored that he was one of Lucky Luciano's mobster crew. Regardless, he was a real piece of work. Even after he and Thelma got married, he apparently kept flirting and cheating on her and all that crap. And 
One article I read said that there was, there were, quote, a series of raging drunken brawls, one so furious it left his nose broken and bleeding and sent her to the hospital for an emergency appendectomy. So, you know, he's a real peach. And I believe it. And here's why. Years later, he was married to Gloria Vanderbilt and he beat the crap out of her, too. She said, quote, he would take my head and bang it against the wall. Vanderbilt said, I had black eyes. And shockingly, they ended up divorced as well. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Thelma and Pat get divorced in 1934, which is, like I said, also the year she opened the cafe. And the cafe was an immediate hit. And she's still active and getting hired for movies. So her life's kicking it. She's in a real good place. But part of the crowd that would regularly hang at the cafe. Oh, and by the way, this was more of a restaurant because there was drinking and dancing and all that, too. And there was also this private upstairs room that was like a club called the Joya. And it had more expensive and unique food. And there was rumors of gambling up there. So I think, you know, the cafe name was her being a little cheeky since it was right there on the beach and stuff. I think she was just being cute. And like a club. Holy cow. Yeah, it was it was it was huge. I got a picture of that. Like a Vegas resort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've got I'll put a picture of it. It was it was a hefty piece of property. So part of that crowd was mafia folks, including the aforementioned Lucky Luciano. And there's a story about how they met that comes from a book on which a TV movie was based. And feel free to try to find that gem. It stars Lonnie Anderson. So I just bet it's great. But anyway, it said that the way they met was that one night at the Coconut Grove, Luciano asked her to have some champagne with him. And she says, no, thanks. And he proceeds to grab her and, quote, pour a whole bottle of Dom Perignon down her throat, which, I mean, that's not that's not possible, but it paints the picture. I kind of get what they're saying. He also was supposedly her dealer for diet pills that she was supposedly taking. And to me, that's easier to believe than him pouring an entire bottle of champagne into her mouth. In any event, supposedly they were having a little affair and that he was rough on her too. And that his real reason for getting close to her, because he wanted to run a gambling ring out of the Joya, which her lawyer later confirmed that she told him. And she was like, nope. And there was one incident where supposedly a bunch of people witnessed it when they were at the Brown Derby at dinner one night. And he was apparently pressuring her about it again when she gets really pissed and she yells over my dead body and storms off. And he goes, that can be arranged, which to me sounds like bad script writing. But I mean, there was a bunch of witnesses then. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound out of either of their characters for that to have happened. So anyway, there's there's the three men in her life around this time, all of whom are real winners. All right, so we arrive at the night of Saturday, December 14th, 1935. Thelma's longtime personal maid, Mae Whitehead, helps her get all fancied up for a party she's attending for Ida Lupino at the Trocadero. All of these locations, I love this. All of these locations that I'm name dropping are phenomenal. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the outfit included a fur and jewels atop a silver sequined gown. I am swooning. So her mom, Alice, was there and they're leaving and her driver, Ernie, is waiting for them to climb in the car. And I got to stop here briefly and quote one of my sources that said of Thelma, quote, she was known as a hard partier on the L.A. social circuit and was often heard ordering one more round of three fingers of rye, her her signature drink, which is straight whiskey. So my kind of gal. She may have also been a fan of bourbon because she gave herself the nickname Hot Toddy. (laughs) which you know if i could not adore her anymore i mean come on and another source says that the reason she had a driver was quote her hard partying caused so many car crashes that her studio eventually paid for her own private chauffeur and insisted that she use it so anyway they're getting in the car and old roland calls out to thelma that she better be home by 2 a.m and thelma's all i'll be home at 205 (laughs) have i mentioned that i love her (laughs) i love I love her. I'll be home at 2.05. So Ernie drops Alice off at her home and gets Selma to the party at around 8 p.m. Now, like I spoiled earlier, there was a coroner's inquest into what happened on this night. So that's why we have all this detail. So it paints a pretty good picture when all the testimony gets cobbled together. Okay, so people at the party said that she was in a great mood and was looking forward to the holidays and that she was drinking her cocktails, but that she wasn't like knee walking drunk or anything. Just tipsy. And one thing, though, her old ex-hubby, Pat, Dick, Dick, what did we say? Dick, Dick, I already forgot. Dick, Pat, Pat DiCiccio, <laughs> DiCiccio, uh, him, had shown up at the Trocadero 
he wasn't part of the Lupino party or anything, but he was there with a date and that he snubbed Thelma. So I guess he didn't even say hi or whatever. I don't know what snubbed entails in the 1930s, but that it led to, quote, a heated argument, rut row, where Thelma was accusing him of trying to humiliate her. And that might have been because the date was a chick named Margaret Lindsay, who was said to be a friend of Thelma's, which some friend. Man. In any event, your friend, you don't do that. Through witnesses, we know that he was seen making a phone call in the lobby around midnight, and then they left around 1 a.m. Other tidbits from that night. Thelma told Ida Lupino that she had been dating, quote, a wealthy San Francisco businessman. She had also talked about movie ideas with Lupino's father, and she bet a table of, quote, Hollywood heavyweights, so I guess producers and studio executives and whatnot, that they wouldn't come and eat at her restaurant the next night. She promised another group of party guests that she'd be seeing them the next day at a get-together at Martha Ford's, who was the wife of an actor called Wallace Ford. Then towards the end of the night, she was visiting with folks at Sid Groman's table of Groman's Chinese Theater. And then as she was getting ready to leave, she asked if he'd call Roland for her and let him know that she was on her way home. I, I don't know why she didn't call herself, but I suppose it would be to dodge his bullshit. So she leaves the Trocadero around 2.30, 2.45, and they get back to the cafe slash apartment at around 3.30. And Ernie, the driver, always walked her upstairs to her door. But this time she said, don't sweat it. And so off he goes. But he later said he thought it was weird because she'd never not let him see her to the door. And he also noticed that she was kind of out of character on the ride home. She just wasn't as chatty as usual. But he respected her wishes and he goes on. But possibly worth mentioning is that, quote, according to a few accounts, he had seen a brown Packard with its lights off parked or approaching as he left. On Sunday, here's a couple of things that happened. One of my sources says that there was around seven people who testified that they'd seen Thelma or spoken to her. That afternoon, Martha Ford had gotten a phone call. And at first she thought the caller said, this is Velma. And when Martha was all, who? The caller was like, no, it's Thelma, hot toddy. And she asked if it was cool if she showed up in her evening gown that she'd been wearing the night before. And Martha says, sure, no problem. And the caller also mentioned that she was bringing a guest and that, quote, you just wait till I walk in. You'll fall dead. And Martha Ford asked if she was sure it was Thelma. And she was like, no, 100 percent. Not a doubt in my mind. So then two people said they'd seen Thelma in her brown roadster waiting at a traffic light at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And two others said that they'd seen her in her car driving past. And then all four of them said that she was with, quote, a swarthy Italian looking man, which, you know, hey, if you could be a little more vague, that'd be great. (laughs) A pharmacist said that she'd been in around 930 that morning, asked to make a phone call. Then after she did, she left. And then that night, those studio execs who she'd made the cute little bet with, they did show up for dinner and they asked Roland where she was. And Roland said that he guessed she was with her mother. So, okay, that was Sunday. We're now at Monday morning around 930. So May, her maid slash assistant that I mentioned earlier, was doing her usual routine of going up the hill to the garages, like a building with multiple garages. Y'all know what I mean. To get Thelma's roadster and bring it down and park it in front of the building so that Thelma had it right there in case she needed to go and do some running around. Because I don't know if I mentioned it, but Thelma was really hands-on at the cafe. She typically was around. She'd get back in the kitchen or behind the bar, work the register, stuff like that. She was really involved. So May goes up there. Listening to her life. That sounds like she's got so much going on. Oh, yeah. She's fantastic. I mean, she's, I would have, oh, I would have given the world to hang out with this lady. So May goes up there and finds that the door, the garage door is closed, but it's not locked and the lights are off. And when she goes in and over to the car, she sees the driver's side door is open. Thelma's inside, still dressed in her Saturday night party outfit, and she's slumped over. So May immediately runs back down to the cafe and tells the general manager to call Roland that she thinks that Thelma might be dead. So Roland goes up there and he also wakes up his brother-in-law who lives in an apartment above the garages and is like, did you not hear a car running? And he says, no, he hadn't heard a thing on Sunday. So they're already thinking that she's been dead since after the party. And Roland tells him, go get the cops. The cops get there around 10 a.m., of course, with reporters in tow, because back in the day, the reporters were always told by somebody on the inside, or maybe they just always had somebody camping outside the station. But in any event, everybody and their mother is shortly on the scene. And the cops shooed them away and were in the garage for about an hour doing their thing, you know, checking out the scene before they let everybody back in to be gross and take pictures, which I'm not putting in show notes, but they're a Google away if you're interested. I mean, I even saw like this comic book strip 
comic book-esque strips of illustrations where a newspaper laid out the timeline of her night. And, oh, talking about the layout of this area, by the way, the cafe and the big house and the garage, like the proximity of where it all was to each other. There was a great sketch I found. So if you're having trouble picturing it, don't sweat it. That's going to be in the show notes. Here's the stuff at the scene. So while the car still had about two gallons in the tank, the battery was dead. And since there was no smell of carbon monoxide in the garage, the guess was that the car had been running for quite a while before the battery gave out. And the lack of smell meant that this happened many hours before she was found. And on the door to the car, there was a smudged handprint and nobody mentioned whether or not it was hers. And I know that would hard to be hard to determine back then, but I just mean in the sense of size, you know, I mean, I feel like they'd be able to go. That's a dude's handprint versus hers. But nobody mentioned that. In her purse is the key to the apartment. And at the apartment, there were scuff marks on the door like somebody had been kicking it to maybe, you know, try to wake somebody up or maybe they were frustrated that they couldn't get in. And more on that in a second. So here's how the state of her body was described. She had, quote, coloring of a person who had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. So in other words, her skin tone would have been kind of ruddy or reddish, which is distinctly different from most corpses who are going to be pale and maybe kind of bluish. So honestly, people who die of carbon monoxide poisoning, they probably just look like they were asleep because that ruddiness counteracts the pale. So they likely just look normal. So she had some blood on her face and her lip was bruised and her nose was broken and she had a chipped tooth, which they theorized was from when she popped her face on the steering wheel when she passed out. And they didn't think there was a struggle because her hair was still perfect and her fingernails were perfect and her makeup was perfect. And then there was no reason to think it was a robbery attempt gone wrong because she still had the fur on and all of her expensive jewelry. Jumping ahead a bit, the autopsy showed that she was not drunk. She had a 0.13 BAC and the carboxyhemoglobin showed like around a 75 to 80% carbon monoxide saturation. So the initial conclusion was that the cause of death, CO poisoning and the manner of death. Yeah, they said it was suicide. And let it be known that the first thing that Thelma's mom said when they told her Thelma was dead, she screamed, she's been murdered. And Zazie Pitts and Patsy Kelly and all of her friends were just vehement that there was there was just no way. And, you know, while we can never know what's going on with a person truly, given that all that was going well for her and her behavior and making plans with people and all that jazz, it, it just doesn't paint the picture of somebody in acute distress, at least based on what we know. They ultimately did change it to accidental suicide. And, and all right, I can see that. But, yeah. but... A couple things that I found interesting and have questions about. Why was the car door open? May didn't open it. She found it that way. And talking about those pictures and the whole thing about busting her nose. So if you see the pictures, she is slumped over and her head is to where it's kind of over the side of the seat. Not a ton, but just enough to where the door being open would make that make sense. That the slump happened after she had opened the door to maybe try and get out if she felt like she was passing out or maybe was kind of passing out and whacking her face on the wheel, woke her up a little and she was trying to get out. I could easily picture that because here's my thing. You whack your face. Let's say you never wake up. Like you've, you've, you're totally conked out. Your body's likely not going to stay perfectly balanced because your face isn't a flat surface, you know? So it's likely you're going to tip to either side. And since she's tipped to the left, you think, okay, so she's now leaning up against that driver's side door. And if somebody opened it, the weight of the body would have caused it to spill out of the car, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now here's another thing. The autopsy showed that there were peas and carrots in her stomach, and that wasn't served at the Lupino party. And people saw her eating at the Lupino party. And supposedly, the estimate was that she'd eaten five to six hours prior. And I will pause here to say, The whole digestion thing I know is shown on crime shows as some sort of deadlock on determining time of death, but it's not a science. It's not robust. It's it's more in the fingerprint category of this is a great tool, but we shouldn't hang the bulk of a conclusion on this. But regardless, that's weird. No matter how long it took for her personally to digest something, it's weird. So it's given that a good handful of witnesses said they spoke to her on Sunday or saw her on Sunday. Then does she go eat after the party somewhere? And there's also rigor to think about 
we can't know from the photos because she she could have been stiff as a board. Who knows? But according to people at the scene, she was easily movable. But the stated time of death was early Sunday morning, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning. So like 3 a.m. or something based on the time she was dropped off, which would have made it something close to 30 hours. And she definitely would have been very stiff by the time she was found. On the other hand, it's not like all those witnesses were trained in physiology. So, you know, got to take all that with a grain of salt. There's also something to be said about the theory that it was accidental suicide because she found herself locked out of the apartment. And Roland later admits he did lock her out when she wasn't home at two. And we know that he'd done it before. And he actually said that that whole comment thing was a joke, but he locked her out so he can sit and spin. (laughs) Jerk. Ugh. But anyway, so the thought was that she was locked out. So she goes up to the garage and gets in her car. And I guess she had a key to the garage, even though that wasn't listed in her belongings, to my knowledge. Okay. Question mark. And gets in and cranks the car to keep warm. Then oopsie. But the key to the apartment was in her purse. So I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there was like a deadbolt or a chain or something. The whole thing's weird. And I'm going to quote from an, from that interview with the author of the book, The Ice Cream Blonde, real quick, because she's the one who unearthed tons of facts more than any articles I read, and she puts this better than I could. So talking about this whole keeping warm theory, the author says that this means that Thelma supposedly, quote, climbed up 271 cliffside stairs in the middle of the night in order to take shelter in her garage. This seems quite simple until you start to analyze every aspect of it. For instance, why would she trick up the hillside instead of waking her partner, as she, Roland, as she had done in the past? Why was her hair and makeup still perfect when the wind was howling and blowing dust from the hill? Why did she walk up the hill when she was known to have an old ankle injury and a thorough dislike for walking? Why would she not take shelter in any of the nooks and crannies that surrounded the cafe building? And in addition to that, didn't she know anyone living on that hillside that may have been able to let her use their phone? All right. So a lot of good points there. Yeah. Now, Aggie Underwood, who is a famous Hollywood true crime reporter and did extensive work on the Black Dahlia case, wrote in her memoir, which contained a section on Thelma, quote, In crucial phases of the case, official versions as told, reporters, varied from subsequent statements. It was known where and what Miss Todd had eaten on Saturday night. Stomach contents found in the autopsy did not appear to bear out reports on the meal. There were other discrepancies, including interpretations of the condition of the body and its position in the automobile. Regarding a detective who was on the case, Underwood also reported, quote, He was deeper in the mystery and receiving threatening calls, which carried a secret and unlisted number. He was warned to lay off if you know what is good for you. Lay off if you know what's good for you. I know. Also, also bad screenwriting. But on the other hand, we are in the 1930s. Yeah, see? Yeah. Yeah. So like I say, they did a coroner's inquest to rule out foul play. And I didn't go on a deep dive into seeing if I could find 100% confirmed details of how they ruled out Pat DiCiccio and Luciano. But I did read that Luciano was ruled out because he was in another state at the time. Though on the other hand, mob boss. I mean, eh. Another place said that not too long after that DiCiccio had gone to New York and that he claimed that he didn't even know Thelma was dead until he was summoned by the inquest to come back to give to California to testify. And that I find incredibly hard to believe since it was all over the news, but it's not like I have access to those transcripts. So whatever. But I also read that Alice, Thelma's mother, stood by Roland, even though he was understandably getting a lot of side eye over his behavior. But speaking of Roland, he waited a whole four days after she died to reopen the cafe. This dude, I swear to God. And, it, and he, uh, this was the announcement in the LA Times, quote, We wish to take this opportunity of thanking Miss Todd's many friends and admirers for their kind thoughts during our recent bereavement. We also wish to advise that we are going to endeavor to carry on as Miss Todd would have liked, doing business as Thelma Todd's Inn. There, there, Inn? There was no like room and board. There wasn't, this guy is just whatever. But apparently business has slowed down. So he changes the name to Shay Roland. <laughs> oh, what a douche. This douche. And started really playing at the nightclub aspect of it to change the vibe. And later on, he married someone famous who I've never heard of called Lola Lane. Great name, by the way, Lola Lane. And after he died, she passed the location on to a Catholic production company. 
And as of 2016, production company. I know, just random. Okay. Just throw Sorry. more randomness in here. And as of 2016, it's supposed. Suppo- I just tried to combine the words reportedly and supposedly. <laughs> Reposedly. It's reportedly going to be renovated into an office building. But speaking of Roland dying, one last rumor. Supposedly, on his deathbed in 1952, Roland confessed to his friend, actor Chester Morris, that he had woken up when Thelma tried to get into the apartment and that he followed her out to the garage and he saw her get into the car and start it and that he had closed the garage door to keep her from leaving, not realizing that the exhaust fumes would be fatal. What? What? Yep. (laughs) Not that she could have just gotten out of the car proclaimed Roland you douche and opened the door back up because the garage door was unlocked unless somebody came back and unlocked it later. So who's to say that Roland didn't go back up early that early, like, okay, so she died on Saturday night slash Sunday morning and he sees all this at like 3 a.m. Who's to say that he didn't go back up later on Sunday before he pops down to the cafe to play, to be like, oh, I guess she's at her mom's. Like, he didn't call her mom. Like, he didn't worry. He was so concerned about her getting home. At a, here's what I found fishy. He was so concerned about her getting home at a certain time, right? Mm-hmm. And that Sunday, when people are like, hey, where's Thelma? And she's always there. She's never not popping in, at least for a little while, when that place yeah. is open. And it's open every day. So when people are like, well, where's Thelma? And he's all over her. He's so controlling. He's like, I don't know. I guess she's at her mom's. Nah, that's that. That was the part that sent up about a billion flags when I was researching all this. I was like, bullshit. That just reeked of bullshit. So, you know, so like he, he, here's her trying to get in. So then he goes back up after he does that, you know, closing the door to prove a point, who knows why, and sees that she's slumped in the car. And you could just picture him going, oh, damn it, Thelma, going over and opening the door and she's dead. And so then he gets the hell out of Dodge. Right. That could have been the handprint on the door where he opened the door. She kind of is leaning against the door. Like I was saying, if she had slumped to the side and she kind of is spilling out of the car. I I don't know. I'm not saying it's true, but I'm just saying. (laughs) So I'll end this with something Thelma said when she was being interviewed. And it was in the context of talking about her career in slapstick comedies, but it really stood out to me. And I think y'all will see what I mean. She said, quote, my life has been full of black and blue episodes. Everybody has taken a crack at me. I've got to the point where I expect a breakaway to fall on me from the ceiling. And when it doesn't, I feel cheated. And that's your story about the ghost of the ice cream blonde. Ooh. Very awesome, Thelma Todd. Yikes. My gosh. So so now like the the building that's going to be an office building, is that where she's haunting or is she up in the garage or just kind of in the area in general? Both. There's the reports are both. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I mean, it's all within the same. It's not right. terribly far. Like it's all it's all on a hill, so it's spread out by virtue of, of being on a hill. Y'all have to go look at the, some, some blessed soul did a sketch, probably like they did sketches of the timeline for the newspaper. Some blessed soul did a beautiful sketch of it. So I've got that in show notes. It's, it's all within close proximity. You just kind of have to go up or take a car and the 271 steps. (laughs) Yeah. If you're walking, it's, it's built into the hill, all these steps, or you could get off of, where did I, what did I say it was on Pacific Coast Highway? So you could, yeah, you'd like turn the way it looks is if like you hung a, if you were in front of the cafe, if you drove to the end of the building and hung a right off of PCH at there, there's like a little road up that way. And then you could go down an, a smaller road that would take you right by the garages. And if you kept going, it would take you to Jewel Carmen's house. All right. I get it. Wow. There were some twists and turns in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of Hollywood ghosts, guys and gals. Yeah. There were some that I was so disappointed that there wasn't information on, like Joan Crawford's house and Joan Crawford's yeah. ghost. Yeah. Yeah, I just want her to be haunting people and 
screaming about wire hangers. I was about to say, just beating the tar out of them with wire hangers <laughs> and throwing Comet at their heads. I love that movie so hard. God, I love that movie. Mommy Dearest, for anybody who doesn't know, please do yourself a favor and watch Mommy Dearest. It is, it is, oh. Uh, do you know, yeah. if I'd never want that movie to be remade, my yeah. only, my only exception to saying that would be if John Waters did it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's already one of the, like, it, it is so camp and so, it's a depressing topic, It but it's still camp in so many ways. Can you imagine if Waters got hold of it? Holy oh Lord. God. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, uh, that movie. That's, it's special. Yeah. I, I came across something that said that Joan Crawford's house was haunted and that she allegedly haunted it and set random fires throughout it. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I don't know. They There was some interesting stuff about like the architecture of the house and just how weird she was. And the daughter, Christine, she allegedly said that the house was haunted when she was a child and she would complain about it and get her ass beat basically for talking about it. <laughs> You know, eat your rare steak. <laughs> That's in the movie too. You know, and of course, there's plenty of old Hollywood because there were so many people there and so many people apparently dying and and being murdered. And ugh. I think we've covered so much. And I think, as always, I'm going to ponder. I've got ideas already for the title. Something to do with sharks. Something. To do, what have we covered? Sharks. We covered sharks, naked men, and perfume. Our hangers. <laughs> this was a packed one. This is a packed one, kids. There's lots of unrest in Hollywood. Oh, keep sending us feedback and and send us in your ghost stories from your hometowns or from your families or from you know if you have a relative that walks around a movie studio telling construction workers what they're doing wrong, we'd love to hear about it. <laughs> You know, that creepy abandoned farm down the street that totally has ghosts or leprechauns or fairies or whatever living in it? Tell us. We want to know. And we got feedback that we need to sign off. Are we going to go with Stay Spooky? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's work with it. You know, be wary of sharks and don't beat your kids with wire hangers. And two things which have nothing to do with anything that we talked about, by the way. <laughs> How about you don't uh, drink too much champagne if you've got peptic ulcers? Let's sign it off with a <laughs> a nice, you know, warning, warning label there. Don't get on a yacht. Don't eat almonds. Don't let Lucky Luciano pour a bottle of Dom don't down your throat. Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Please don't fuck around with Charlie, especially since he's been dead for like 80 years. Don't fuck around with Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> All right. We're signing off. Right. Stay spooky. Yeah, stay spooky, friends. <laughs>